Hi, welcome to the ESVS podcast. My name is Vaiva Dabravoskaita. And I'm Lawrence Bertrand. Today we will cover a widely discussed topic in an endovascular field, physician or surgeon-modified stent grafts. First of all, let me walk you through the current endovascular options for the treatment of iliac aneurysms, complex AAA, and abdominal aneurysms. Complex endovascular treatment of aortic disease has been a game-changer in the last couple of decades and is being implemented more and more widely. It has become particularly important to increase indications for repair to an aging population and complex anatomy, often high risk for open repair. Nowadays, there is a big range of options like fenestrated and branch technology, chimney and snorkel techniques, or hybrid repairs. So what is the role of physician-modified stent grafts? Today we are going to discuss this technique in depth with leading vascular and endovascular surgeons in Europe. Let me introduce you to Professor Vladimir Makoloski, head of the endovascular department in the University Hospital of Bern in Switzerland. He is actively involved in the education of residents and medical students, as well as proctoring complex endovascular cases in Switzerland and beyond. Hello, Dr. Makoloski. Hi, everybody. Hi, Viva. Hi, Lawrence. Thank you for the kind invitation, of course. Great thanks to the podcast team of ESVS. And also we have Professor Nicolaus Selimparis, Head of Vascular Surgery Department at the Ludwig Maximilian University Hospital in Munich, Germany, and co-author of the Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of Physician-Modified Endografts for Treatment of Thoracoabdominal and Complex Abdominal Aortic Aneurysms, recently published in the European Journal of Vascular and Endovascular Surgery. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Selimparis. Thank you very much from my side as well. It's a great honor to be here and uh, look forward to a great discussion. We are very excited to talk with you about this topic today. So without further delay, let's dig into it. Since our listeners are from different backgrounds and areas in vascular medicine and surgery, let's start at the beginning. First, Dr. Makalowski, what is physician or surgeon modified endograft? Well, basically, these are the same stand graphs that we use in everyday work which are available off the shelf, have fixed diameter and lengths, and can be used in every position of the outer iliac segment. Dr. Tillemparis, what are the anatomical areas in which surgical modified grafts can be used? Well, the anatomically, the surgically modified grafts or physician modified grafts, because it's not only surgeons uh, that do these modifications, but rather also uh, any specialty that uh, works with complex interventions would involve, as uh, Vladimir also mentioned, all areas of uh, of the aortic tree. Um, this is where they are always used. Do they differ from the areas of vessel characteristics where a custom-made graft can be used? But generally, no, because we can use custom-made stand grafts for every segment of the aortic tree. How many fenestrations can be made on one graft? Well, in my opinion, we can do from between one and, and five, but we normally don't do too much fenestration because it takes a lot of time. But in two to three segments, uh, the, the average that we use, but there is no limit. Dr. Silimparis, do you have something to add? I would not change my practice because it's a surgeon modified graph. So we have moved more and more into the uh, three or four fenestrate devices for the thoracoabdominal aorta, and this is usually what we what we do because I also f- find it sometimes easier to do 
at least with the with the devices that I modify, um, I find it easier to do four or, or three than to do just two and have to deal with uh, the short distances to the other vessels. All right. Can all stand grafts available in the market be physician modified? Well, as far as I know at the moment, not every available stand graft can be modified. There are some of them we can be modified. Actually, the graft, we can be easily deployed partially and then resheated. That's what makes the difference. Some of the grafts cannot be easily resheated and they're, of course, limited to the surgeon modification. And I would absolutely agree with that. That's, of course, when we talk about fenestrations. Um, perhaps we can also mention that modifications of a stent graft could also go in the direction of an aortic plaque like the candy plaque, which uh, are modified stent grafts as well in a certain way. Um, but this is, uh, I think, a whole other topic. Yeah, we will keep that in mind. Uh, bearing in mind all the possible off-the-shelf standard or custom-made grafts in the market, when should a surgeon modified endograft be used? What would be the indications for this device in general and according to the anatomical area? So the most common indication to do a modification is usually in, in our practice, at least the pararenal or paravisceral aortic aneurysms, where the lumen at the level of the paravisceral aorta is smaller and you need to uh, have and you don't have enough space for branches. Um, uh, having said that, there is also, of course, the arch, um, where sometimes a single fenestration for the left subclavian artery as a modification of the left carotid artery could be life-saving life um, in certain uh, emergent situations. Well, I fully agree with you, Nikos. Of course, I start using it at the loft is uh, new usage for the ILEC surgery modification of the limb, for example, not a bifurcated, not a tube graft, but a surgic, surgical modification of ILEC limb. And we, of course, use it in the aortic arch in some elective and much more in the emergency cases. So basically in different segments, the same modification. So we've um, touched on it a little bit already, but um, when we're comparing the surgeon-modified endografts to the custom-made um, endografts branched or fenestrated, what would you say are the main advantages and disadvantages? Let's start with the advantages. Well, the availability, for example. This is the stand graft that you have off the shelf that you already know very well in your everyday practice. You're using it for years and you generally know all the features of the stand graft that you want to modify. That means the size of the graft, the, the sizes of the stands, the height and white, etc. And this is something that we normally use in a very small introducing sheet. The custom-made, for example, devices are much bigger than a surgeon-modified. So the delivery system is much bigger. And of course, can be used 24-7. That means we can have it the moment we need it immediately. So these are the biggest advantages in my eyes. Um, there are huge differences in the quality of the endograph if it's um, modified by a physician and if, product, uh, or, and if uh, produced by a company uh, with all the quality assurance measures that uh, that come with it. Um, uh, before releasing a custom-made graft from, uh, to the market, uh, it goes through uh, checks and rechecks and quality controls that um, we don't do in our everyday practice. And also we have a big disadvantage in 
terms of the fenestrations, most of the, of the physicians that modify do not have them available and will use wires um, or, um, or snares as uh, a radiopaque marker, also a, a reinforcing of the fenestration, which is not as good in the seal as it is for, uh, with the custom-made devices. Furthermore, when you unseat and reseat, we know there can be some damage on the graft or in the on the seat, which can also affect uh, later on the uh, the access vessels. Uh, that was an experience we had in the very beginning. Thank you, Professor. Um, Professor Makalowski, do you have any specific disadvantages that you'd like to add? Well, there is no no chance to test these grafts, neither in a simulator nor in a model, for example. When you do it on your own and you want to use it immediately, then uh, you're not allowed to do any mistakes by the sizing, planning, or, or producing it by your own. And of course, not every graft can be easily modified. And it's and not every anatomy can be easily accessible, even with surgery modified graphs. So there are some disadvantages. Not every one of us can use it in a every setting. So the manpower does play a role as well. What are the contraindications, relative or absolute ones? Well, in general, all the contraindications that you have for a custom-made device are the contraindications for the for the surgery modification as well. So, for example, bad access vessel or tortuous or not easily accessible target vessel or too small target vessel. So we start to using this uh, technique, for example, to save a lot of accessory renal arteries. And then realize that if we do it for a diameter of less than four millimeters, the patency of our target vessel was bad. So we just aborted it and start to, to preserve the vessels, which are four millimeters and above, for example. We also had some bad, ex bad experience. If you have a huge abdominal graft, like 36 millimeters and you Resheet it and want to reload it afterwards, then uh, might be in a different way reloaded that your fenestration are not deploying as you would like to have. So there are some contraindications, of course. For me, it's a contraindication to use in the absolute elective setting. Um, but apart from that, I would uh, absolutely agree with uh, Vladimir. All right. Uh, now let's try to unwrap the mystery behind the technical part of the procedure. Dr. Mokoloski, please share with us how to adequately prepare for a complex AAA treatment using a physician-modified stent graft. Oh, that's a, that's a complex question, but I'll try to do with a quick explanation. But you start with, as always, with a dedicated sizing and planning, like for every endovascular procedure. And then you mean you have to aim for at least two or three centimeters of landing proximal zone, depending on how many vessel origins do you have in this landing zone, proximal landing zone. It's the number of fenestration you're aiming to do. And this exactly means that you have to measure the length or the, of the origin, the rotation, how are the position on a clockwise, and then planning the position of your fenestration. In simple example, you have like juxtarenal uh, aneurysm with no existing uh, neck landing zone, then you have to open the graft and plan the two fenestration within the first or two or second stent row, depending on the rotation and size of the origin. And this is how you, you're then opening the, the graft, cutting the fenestration. And of course, what we always do, we reinforce the fenestration with a wire or with a part of snare, as Nikos mentioned, in order to be able to visualize this fenestration afterwards. So the, after you've fixed your fenestration, then you have to resheat the graft and, and proceed with the, with the operation. So that will be basically the, 
short explanation. Are there any differences when you perform a procedure in an iliac segment? Well, the difference is that we used an, an iliac limb, for example, and it's only one fenestration because there's only one iliac on one side. So it makes a bit easier the fenestration, the, the resheating, and of course the deployment. All right, thank you. That was a fantastic sum up of the preparation and the procedure. Uh, Dr. Tilimparis, can you walk us through the procedure of a surgeon-modified T-VAR? Are there any additional details which you need to, which need to be considered, such as spinal fluid drainage, rapid pacing, or more adequate neurological monitoring? Uh, well, I think what performing a complex uh, arch repair uh, with uh, fenestrated or branch devices in the arch is generally um, a very demanding procedure where you um, need to take into account all the parameters that we, we take irrespective of whether it's uh, a surgeon modified or custom made. And I would say that uh, the neurological monitoring, the, the excellent planning are the most important things. And of course, uh, what when you do cardiac out uh, um, uh, reduction, um, you need to use one of the techniques that are available like the move it, uh, rapid pacing uh, and so on. So, uh, specifically on the surgeon-modified TVAR, I think that the aortic arch is probably the most challenging area to modify a graft. And I would not um, uh, recommend doing it in, um, uh, in simultaneously in, in with more than one or two fenestrations. Um, because the biggest challenge that we have in the aortic arch, if we don't have a dedicated device with a per-curved uh, configuration, is how you orientate the graft in the aortic arch. Unlike the thoracoabdominal aorta, you cannot maneuver the graft inside the arch anymore once you have it in place. And it pretty much takes, uh, once it takes the outer curvature, it's very difficult to uh, adjust the position in place. So um, you need to kind of go all the way out of the arch again, rotate correctly, try to find the right rotation, go back in. And this is something that if you do it two or three times, it creates a lot of manipulation on the arch that you don't want to have. Um, there are, of course, some tricks uh, and uh, means to go around it like using a preloaded catheter um, or a preloaded wire for one of these fenestrations and uh, there have been some very nice publications like from George Joseph who has even described it this in, in a triple arch case but this is something that I would um, only do in, in selected cases um, important is um, that after you do the modification, you advance in the arch, you try to have the right orientation so that the fenestrations look at the outer curvature. As I said, we don't do more than one or two fenestrations when we do the arch. And I personally also, I, I'm not a fan of these very large fenestrations. There are um, some colleagues that do arch fenestrated cases, for example, to cover uh, a lesion of the inner curvature, and they make huge holes on the graft uh, and to maintain patency of the supraortic vessels. In my eyes, this is not a durable uh, long-time uh, solution. All right. Based on your practice, what are the most common intraoperative complications? 
Well, uh, I would say that um, that uh, if we're talking about the arch, the orientation is the, the biggest issue and that uh, the manipulations can, uh, can cause uh, strokes. Um, if we talk about the abdominal or thoracoabdominal aorta, um, I think that in the meanwhile we have a good level of expertise and uh, the level of complications locally in the in the in the target vessels is not that high. What we sometimes see and we saw also in our experience with the series that we published so far is that and also the big series from coming from the US is that if you compare the custom-made devices with the surge-modified devices in the thoracoabdominal or in the abdominal aorta, they tend to have a, a slightly higher rate of type 3 endoleaks, which probably has to, to do with the seal and the quality of the seal we get uh, of the ring we have on our fenestrations. Well, that's experience we, we cannot share, unfortunately, Nikos. We don't have to agree in every point. Because what we do, we always, for example, do a double running suture of the fenestration and it's either visualized with the tip of a 014 wire or part of a snare. So I insist in all cases to have a double running suture and fix this fenestration as, prop as a properly done custom-made device, for example. So we never had any issues with type 3 endolics in these cases, but with I experience at might be a problem is that if you have a wrong projection of the fenestration and then you might lose a target vessel. What I've experienced a couple of times is, as I mentioned before, the bigger grafts will be resheated and that means that sometimes the fenestration is not placed on a real side of the graft where you would expect it. We had this Pac-Man sign, for example, once with a big graft and the fenestration was within, infolding in the graft itself. We were not able to open it and in the end we have to convert this case to once we discovered uh, possible problems, maybe you could share with our listeners any bailout techniques for the most common tricky situations you have encountered throughout your practice. Um, bailouts uh, in terms of, uh, of, uh, of uh, malrotation, I think it's uh, if, if you don't use constraining wires, you can get into trouble and uh, indeed lose uh, target vessels. Uh, we have uh, we have changed our practice into always using uh, a constraining wire in all our surgeon modified devices. Um, when we use the Cook platform, uh, we use one of the running uh, 19 wires of the thoracic device that run through the central cannula and reroute it outside the graft. When we use the Metronic uh, graft, uh, we usually puncture the sheath and um, take a, a 018 wire uh, through the sheath uh, uh, outside of the graft um, and then uh, do some uh, sutures uh, along that, uh, along that uh, wire which you then remove while deploying the graft. I think that helped us a lot uh, in our experience to uh, uh, add more maneuverability during the deployment of the graft or to correct the position of the fenestrations and uh, helped us uh, not lose any target vessels along the way. Well, thanks for this nice introduction because we use this as well, not all the time, but sometimes we use some reduction ties to be able to get out of the fenestration and find the target vessel. 
as a bailout technique, what I've started to use sometimes, if you, if you have a very delicate anatomy of three or four-fold fenestration, then we tend to just partially deploy the main body and then come from above with a brachial or axillary axis, go through the closed tip capture of the wire with a seven or eight French sheet and went into the main body and then try to catheterize and finish all the target vessel with partially opened main body. So if we can do this or just have a contralateral limb opening to have some flow distally, then it's easy to cannulate all the graft because as long as you have the tip capture closed, you can still be able to maneuver even outside of the graft by coming in from below. Sometimes we even tend to have true and true wire outside of the graft to put aside a bit the main body to ease the way to catheterize the target vessel and then complete it. So we've touched a little bit on this already earlier um, with the testing of the surgeon-modified devices, but just to call it as it is, intuitively, looking at the surgeon-modified devices, we would might imagine that they are less exact than the custom-made devices. Is that a fair assumption? I would not say so. Well, I would like to add that we tend to use a bigger fenestration at the very beginning because we were afraid not to to miss the alignment between this graft and the target vessel. But nowadays we're really doing as the CMD are doing. We have, for example, six millimeter renal artery, so we do a seven millimeter fenestration. So it's always one millimeter plus of the original diameter of, of the target vessel. So we we never had any experience that we were completely lost uh, the target vessel by completely misplaced fenestration because if you read your CT scans properly, do the sizing and planning real as you should do it for a custom-made device, so you're not going to miss it at the end of the day. What I also start to do, and we were a bit careful at the beginning, is with the flaring of this fenestration because we were afraid not to damage the fenestrated stand graph with too much flaring. So nowadays we have no fears about it and we really do it with at least two millimeter bigger balloon than the fenestration itself. So this is how you can control the potential risk of, of having a type 3 endolic and, and we did it now systematically with every single fenestration, be always flaring, if you have 7 or 8 millimeter fenestration, we flare it at least with a 10 millimeter balloon and we have not observed any, any type 3, neither intraoperatively nor postoperatively recently, so I, I think that this approach should be, should be taken into account, not be afraid to flare it. Probably that comes with experience, <laughs> losing the fear. Um, the systematic review published by Dr. Tilimbaris and co-authors regarding complex AAA and abdominal treatment with certain modified stent grafts showed that primary patency of fenestrated vessels was worse than in the branched ones. In custom-made devices, it seemed to be that the results are the other way around. Why might this be? Uh, what is primary patency and overall durability? Uh, well, I, I would. Uh, it's a little bit difficult to uh, interpret uh, the cumulative pulled effect of different studies, um, but I would explain it more um, with the number of uh, branched cases that are included in this meta-analysis and the number of fenestrated cases uh, that are included. And indeed, we had a much higher number of, uh, of, uh, of branch cases that fenestrations, um, no fenestrated cases that branches. And I believe that uh, the, the physicians that did branches uh, used them probably much more selectively 
and I, that's how I would probably explain that. But uh, we didn't have the raw data, of course, when we did this analysis of the of the or the meta analysis, um, and we were not able to figure that uh, out. But that would be my explanation. Well, probably it's fair to say it, but I think this data, which Nikos analyzed in this systematic uh, review and, and meta-analysis, are starting from the very beginning when we had some bad experience and then increasing the, the experience, meaning that you have less complications or problems on the way. And this technical success rate was much better at the end of the analysis, much for sure for the fenestration as well, not only for the for the branch graft. So... I think regarding primary patency and overall durability, both of techniques are good, but the vast majority of the cases are just fenestration and not the branch devices. If you have to do a surgery modified branch device, probably you're not going to do it, but you'd rather take one off-the-shelf device which already has branches. So I think this does make a difference. We had no issues, for example, regarding the primary patency. And, and the durability in our experience, which now goes even up to five years from the very first cases we did, is great. So we have no re-interventions at the level of the bridging stents and uh, no type 1 endolix, for example. Great. Uh, what is the follow-up protocol in your institutions? And do you have any algorithm regarding the duration of antithrombotic medication postoperative? Well, I tend not to defer this patient from the other one with custom-made device. They have this ex exactly the same follow-up protocol that the custom-made device graphs had. That means, in example, that we do a CT scan prior discharge. If everything is okay, they will then control it in six months, and then after one year, then yearly thereafter. But the patency of the target vessel are a bit difficult to be judged with the, only with duplex ultrasound. So that does mean a bit of uh, exposure over the years. And regarding anticoagulation, um, we usually do uh, three months of uh, dual antiplatelet therapy with uh, uh, aspirin, clopidogrel, and then uh, switch to a monotherapy. Monotherapy of aspirin. Yes, or clopidogrel, depending on, on the patients. Antitrobotic medication, we normally do a double antiplatelet as well, but we tend to extend it even up to six months. So it's a very hot topic now. Thank you. Uh, what was the learning curve for you both? Uh, where does one learn this technique? Uh, you need to have a good basis on, on these techniques before you move on to uh, surgeon modified. And I would say that the learning curve for surgeon modified is to really have a very standardized uh, approach uh, lies at about 10 to 20 cases. Well, I couldn't agree anymore with Nikos because I started to do this surgeon modification with the accessory renals first, and then we switched to the to the main renal arteries, and then we extended to three or fourfold surgery modified fenestration. And of course, it takes some learning curve. And I can remember that I just had two conversation conversion of these uh, surgery modified cases during my career, and both of them were at the very beginning because I was too ambitious, and I started as Nico said with. Uh, too many fenestration in emergency setting. But uh, if you have no backup, then you shouldn't start with it at all. Um, in your opinion, should this technique be performed only in highly specialized centers or can it be performed in all vascular centers that do standard TVAR-EVAR procedures? Well, I think that uh, uh, only centers that have extensive experience with complex EVAR and TVAR should move to these techniques. 
My opinion is very clear about it. It should be done in a really specialized centers where you have experience with custom-made devices, as Nico said. Thank you. Uh, in the ESVS 2019 clinical practice guidelines on the management of or, uh, abdominal aortoiliac artery aneurysms, there is a class 2B recommendation based on a level of evidence C that states the following. In patients with ruptured juxtaoparavenal aortic uh, aneurysm, open repair or complex endovascular repair may be considered based on patient status, anatomy, local routines, team experience, and patient's preference. Yet in an elective setting, another recommendation states that in patients with juxtarenal abdominal aortic aneurysm, new techniques or concepts including endovascular aneurysm seal, endostaples, and in-situ laser fenestrations are not recommended as first-line treatment, but should be limited to studies approved by research ethics committees until adequately evaluated. Why is there this discrepancy in the recommendations. Should they be changed in the next update? What are the, your views? I'm not sure there is uh, a discrepancy uh, here um, because the, 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 the emergency and the elective setting are to be, uh, of course, kept apart completely. On the other hand, on the elective setting, as it says in the guidelines, um, uh, you should not Put the patient at any risk. There's no reason to do this in a patient who has time to wait for a validated, regulated solution such as open surgery or uh, custom-made devices. So I think um, I don't see a contradiction necessarily. I think that these two recommendations uh, uh, complete each other uh, actually quite well. I would like just to stress these two words you mentioned, however, for the ruptured aneurysm. Local routines and team experience, exactly that is what counts at the end of the day. What you're familiar to do, you should do. If that's open procedure, then you should do open procedure. If that's endovascular, then you have to go in endovascular. If you're familiar with the surgeon-modified technique, then you go and do the surgeon-modified technique. That's your choice. But when it comes to the elective setting, I have a bit different opinion than Nikos, and maybe that's even good that we don't have to share all the, the views we have. I rather do, for example, a simple juxtarenal, even in elective setting with a surgeon modified graph, not because I'm afraid to, to command the customer to do anything else, but just to be able to have good skills when it comes to the emergency settings, because if you never do it in an elective basis, this kind of treatment, you might end up with some with some problems in emergency basis because you're lacking some routine. If the guidelines should be changed or update, I don't think we should do anything different now. What we have to de deliver is actually good data. Uh, also, surgery modified stain grafts are still not included among the official treatment indications provided by the industry. And bearing in mind this background information, how do you present the treatment plan to the patient? Uh, well, um... As as uh, as mentioned in my practice, we don't do it in the elective setting. Um, I would, I I, I see uh, the point that Vlado raised about having the skills to do it uh, in the emergency, um, but I am not sure that is a valid argument to to give to a patient who just wants he, the treatment of his elective aneurysm. So I I would disagree on that. 
Um, but um, in, in the elective setting, I think you need to pro to give him all the options, uh, and the best option is the CMD. In the in the urgent setting or the emergent setting, you are of course restricted by what you have available and what you can do the best and what you think is best for the patients. But when I present this treatment option, I always tell the patients that we can do this. This is an option of doing a surgery modified device. I believe that this has similar results or comparable results to what we would do with the CMD device, but we take a risk. And I always let them sign on the consent that they know about this modification that is being done. We do also have an open discussion with the patient and try to explain them the needs and the background thoughts about this modification. And of course, we tend to have their consent about the usage. Probably the industry partner will never say, yes, we should do it on a regular basis and we'll be willing to change their views. And of course, they have these indications for use, the IFUs, which are quite limiting. But even if you do a procedure according to the IFUs, that doesn't mean that one or five years later you will still have a great result because we have a lot of problems even if the regular use of a graft according to the IFUs and they still develop type 1 or type 3 or 4 endolics and they need some reintervention, etc. So the industrial point of view is probably different than we have and I think Nikos is right when it raised this question at the legal part probably is much bigger burden in our hands than from the industrial partners. And I think we naturally move a little bit already to the next question. Uh, we all know that regardless of physicians' efforts, not all of our procedures are successful. I would like to hear your experience and opinions regarding the overall responsibility if something goes wrong during the procedure. Who has a legal responsibility in such case? So physician, industry, both? Well, to be honest, I've never had an open discussion about it with our compliance and legal department, but uh, we always have an open discussion with the patient, explaining what we are doing and which pace, what are the, the thoughts about it, and then we were able to gain their consent always. We had no issues about it, and we had no problems whatsoever, except this one conver conversion we had in elective setting, which was explained by our... Uh, view to the patient, he accepted that we had no issues about it. But uh, in general, this is something which is not regulated. So probably we need a further discussion with the industrial partners or with our legal departments to be able to have a platform which is suitable for everybody to give us some more stability. Because I think at the end of the day, we are the ones who are bearing the older responsibility for some unsuccessful treatment. And I would also agree. Um, I think that um, at the moment that we decide to modify a medical a medical device, um, the companies and the industry are not bearing any responsibility anymore. And of course, they would never accept it as well, because uh, when you do that, you just they cannot just they cannot assume this responsibility. That makes sense. So the physician is in full responsibility of, uh, of what is happening on the product at the moment that uh, you decide to modify it. And that's a very important thing. And I think uh, there is a big difference from country to country. Well, my next question is about the future. 
Um, what do you think that we'll be seeing in the future? Is there going to be a lot more physician-modified stents? Is this going to be the way to go? Is the indication for this going to get broader? Or instead, are we going to see better, more adapted, faster-made, custom-made devices so that this is actually just an interim phase in the story of aortic stents? To be honest, I don't think this is an interim phase. I think we will still use surgeon-modified grafts or physician-modified grafts, and this tendency will probably following us for many years from now on because there are very clear indication or very clear situation where we can use it. Of course, presuming that you know what you're doing and you have no problems while doing it. And I do expect and do hope so that we will have increased number of custom-made devices and especially their quicker production to be able to stop or reduce this delay that we are experiencing now. Nick was mentioned that it might go forward to up eight weeks. In my personal experience, even goes even up to three, even four months from the very moment we command it to the implantation. So this is some gap that we shouldn't and we cannot accept it on a long term. But that means not our goodwill, but some uh, goodwill from our industrial partners to improve this production and the delivery, of course. And uh, still situation, probably the symptomatic and the ruptured cases will still be available to use this surgeon modified. So there will be a place for them even in the future. It's not stopped now. What would be your advice and take-home message for the physicians who are planning to implement this technique? Well, definitely to start with very small steps and learn the technique, maybe in some centers who are very experienced with it. Don't start doing it but yourself on your own when you've never seen or done one before. I do hope that we will be able to work, do some workshops in the future and, and promote this technique on a regular basis, on a standardized basis how we do it or how others are doing and then to be able to teach other younger colleagues to use this technique safe above all because this is what counts for the patient and for us as well. And then doing it by small steps, I mean by doing in one or two fenestration, maybe in some semi-elective settings and then go for many fenestration in elective or emergency cases. By this, you may learn the technique to be properly used like... Uh, we used to do it for the upper or lower extremity access with reducing ties or with, uh, with pre-catheterized fenestration. So everything which will guide you to the successful completion of the treatment and reducing the complications for the patients. Of course, it will never be a perfect technique. It will never be a 100% technical success rate, but we should aim to high as much as we get and reduce the problems we used to have as a learning surgeons on our own. And I would also agree that it's, uh, it's probably the best thing one can do is after having uh, gathered some experience in, in the CMD devices to go to a center where he knows that there is an expert doing surgeon-modified devices, ask him, drill him, um, get all the inside information a lot of the of the things uh, that we are discussing today um, have been described a long time ago. They're in, in books and in, in papers. So uh, get that information in your hands. Uh, nothing. There's nothing that it has not been written. And uh, of course, uh, reach out to the people who have more experience and ask questions. That's how I did it, um, uh, and uh, that's how we established our practice. 
and of course keep learning from each other and I think uh, doing workshops uh, sooner or later once we have gotten over the the regulatory fear uh, would be a good way to disseminate the technique. Thank you all so much for a great overview of very complex information in such a short time. We have greatly enjoyed it and learned a lot and no doubt so have our listeners. It has been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you once more and goodbye everybody. Thank you both for a, a very interesting questions, a very pleasant discussion um, to Vlado as well and uh, I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for the opportunity. And thank you out there for listening. I would like to remind that you can find all the SVS podcasts open access in Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, the Vasculum Forum webpage and the ESVS library. We wish you all a great day. Talk to you soon again. Goodbye.